I join in the hope that in essentials we will find unity and in non-essentials liberty, but because the essential and the non-essential adiaphora can be so challenging to discern, particularly at the margins and with those whose values or faith differ from our own, I hope that in all instances we'll exhibit charity. Adiaf what? Yeah, it was a new word for me too. But during this episode of the Humble Jurist Podcast, we're going to learn all about that and more. Elder James R. Rasband, a General Authority 70 of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, addressed the J. Reuben Clark Law Society at a worldwide fireside in 2019. As an attorney and academic by profession, he used his analytical training to help us distinguish between what he calls the essential and non-essential, which can be really helpful when it comes to prioritizing, peacemaking, and picking battles. Here's the heart of his remarks from that international address. The study of law, not just at BYU, but at any law school and continuing in law practice, acquaints us with the fact that interpreting text and law can be challenging, particularly where persons engage in the interpretive task from different experiences, backgrounds, and preferences. But the fact that language can have different meanings also must not obscure that there are certain fixed stars and immutable truths by which we can guide ourselves. This evening, I want to address the question how we can distinguish interpretive questions on which we should give wide latitude and what President Oaks described as fundamental principles on which there is no latitude. As President Oaks also noted, different rules stand on different footings. There is no democracy among legal rules. Some are more important than others. Thus, some rules are based on eternal principles of right and wrong or on basic tenets of our Constitution. Others are rooted in the soil of men's reasoning, soil that may be washed away by the torrent of human custom or the current of advancing thought, leaving the rule without support or justification. In furtherance of their devotion to the rule of law, the graduates of this law school, and I'd add parenthetically, all of the members of the J. Reuben Clark Law Society, continuing the quote, should have minds sufficiently bright and consciences sufficiently sensitive to distinguish between rules grounded on morality and those grounded solely on precedent or tradition. Rules based on tradition may be assailed when their supporting reasons have lost touch with the soil of human need, but rules based on morality must be defended at all costs since they are rooted in the eternal principles of right revealed by God our Father." Close quote. So how do we distinguish the rules that are essential, the rules that are fundamental and unalterable, from the rules rooted in the soil of men's reasoning that can be washed away by the torrent of human custom or advancing thought? Discerning this line is no small moral task. I don't claim to discern this boundary with precision. And part of my point this evening will be that we should be cautious in assuming we can. But I do claim that fundamental boundaries exist. More broadly and equally fundamentally, I want to consider the principles that should guide our engagement with this line-drawing exercise. The effort to distinguish the essential from the non-essential is an age-old task. Stoic philosophers long ago divided human endeavor into three categories, good, evil, and adiaphora, which is a Greek term, adiaphora, meaning things indifferent. 
During the Protestant Reformation, the reformers argued endlessly about what belonged in the category of adiaphora. Was it essential or indifferent if the priest wore a surplice? If the communion table was level with the congregation or elevated? If communicants knelt or stood for communion? If worshipers sang hymns and so forth? Great debates raged about the boundaries of adiaphora in a properly reformed church. Now, I have to confess that references to the Greek uh, when I don't know um, Greek or to Stoics when I'm not a trained philosopher are a bit risky. As lawyers, you'll both share my trepidation and uh, my willingness um, to venture into areas where I have little formal training. Um, it surely is the life of a litigator. I, so I was first introduced to this concept of adiaphora and that terminology years ago by John Tanner when we were serving together in the BYU administration and we were trying to consider the application of the capacious boundaries of BYU's academic freedom statement. John pointed out how often the scriptures use the language, it mattereth not. And as I will discuss later, in many, many cases, that is surely true. Although the precise debates that animated the reformers during the Protestant Reformation no longer generate much energy, there is still plenty of energy, some appropriate and some inappropriate, for engaging in the boundary-drawing exercise of distinguishing the essential from the adiaphora or things indifferent. In my judgment, grasping the nature of this challenge is a task for which lawyers, by their training, are particularly well-equipped. As a framework for considering the line between essential and adiaphora, let's return to President Oak's address on the first day of classes where he said that, quote, we expect to have a vigorous examination of the legal principles governing the relationship between church and state under the Constitution, but no time for debate over the existence of God, close quote. Doctrinally, God's existence is not a matter for indifference. One cannot simultaneously claim belief in the restored gospel and indifference on this matter. Note, however, that belief in the existence of God is, in some sense, adiaphora if the test is national citizenship rather than membership in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. This distinction is conceptually important when we operate in both worlds, but presents a challenging tension to which I'll return. What else can we say confidently is not part of adiaphora for a believer? Immediately, we might add belief in the doctrine of the Savior's atoning sacrifice and the two great commandments set forth in the Savior's response to the lawyer's question, which is the greatest commandment in the law. Quote, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Close quote. To take one more illustrative step, we could add the Ten Commandments to the essential list. In fact, we could continue this exercise all evening, identifying other doctrines and commandments and adding them to that essential core. And as we added items to the core, however, at some point, and it would not be the same point for everyone in this room, we would hit upon issues where we would disagree whether the teaching or practice was essential or adiaphora. To take a common example, consider Sabbath observance. We might all concur about the essential nature of the command in Exodus to, quote, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, 
Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Close quote. But would we all agree on a list of permitted and prohibited Sabbath activities? How do we interpret the command to keep the Sabbath day holy? What does it mean that on the Sabbath day thou shalt not do any work? What about the ox in the mire? What about essential health and public services? And to place this in the context of civil society, if we can discern the essentials of Sabbath observance, what if any part of those essentials is appropriate to demand of our fellow citizens? If we can settle upon the appropriate meaning and scope of Sabbath work, should our conclusion be imposed on fellow citizens, for example, in the form of blue laws? This same interpretive challenge of discerning the boundaries of the essential and adiaphora emerges in the application of doctrine after doctrine. Even in the two great commandments, we are faced with the interpretive question of exactly how love of God and love of our neighbor should manifest themselves. Ask any parent or friend about what love demands, and they will surely tell you of the struggle for discernment. I hope it is clear that distinguishing the essential from the adiaphora is not merely a theoretical exercise, but instead the stuff of our everyday lives. If we struggle with the particular doctrine of the gospel, can we simply relegate that doctrine to the adiaphora? How much room for disagreement is there? Is separating the adiaphora from the essential just a matter of personal preference, or is there a real line to be discerned? I'm committed to the principle that there are, in fact, real lines to be discerned. I've mentioned just a few of them already. But my project tonight isn't to draw all those lines. Instead, I'd like to consider some principles by which we can approach this discernment challenge. I discuss first a familiar but important idea. Distinguishing the essential from adiaphora is partly about distinguishing principle from application. Here again, the law of the Sabbath is instructive. And to be clear, my primary concern is not the Sabbath. Rather, my sense is that the familiarity for all of us of Sabbath boundary questions will help illustrate the conceptual framework that I hope can then apply to challenging doctrinal, political, social policy boundary questions that may weigh on each of us. As President Russell M. Nelson said in a conference talk a few years ago, quote, in my much younger years, I studied the work of others who had compiled lists of things to do and things not to do on the Sabbath. It wasn't until after that after that, I learned from the scriptures that my conduct and my attitude on the Sabbath constitute a sign between me and my Heavenly Father. With that understanding, I no longer needed lists of do's and don'ts. When I had to make a decision whether or not an activity was appropriate for the Sabbath, I simply asked myself, what sign do I want to give to God? That question made my choices about the Sabbath day crystal clear." Close quote. Not only for the Sabbath day, but for any commandment, it is simply impossible to list all the potential applications. The value of focusing on principles is that once internalized, the principle allows us to adapt to a wide range of questions and challenges. Principles have staying power, whereas applications can, in President Oak's words, lose touch with the soil of human need. Although I fear it is disciplinary arrogance. Um, I'm in the right group because I believe legal training equips us well to perceive the difference between principles and application. 
starting in the first year of law school, there's a relentless focus on thinking about core theory and considering different hypotheticals that apply to those theories. Take, for example, the study of tort law. The goal is not to turn everyone into personal injury lawyers. Rather, the goal is to have students think about concepts like unreasonable risk, causation, and the scope of an individual's responsibility in society. Similarly, the purpose of one's property law course is not to make sure students can write up a mortgage or a lease, but to have them think about the nature of ownership. What makes something property? What limits can society place on our use of property? And in contracts, the goal is not primarily to teach students how to write contracts, but to have them think about why some agreements are binding but others might not be. Why it matters when someone takes action and reliance on the promise of another, and so forth. President Oaks, in his address on the first day of classes at BYU Law, emphasized that the best legal training focuses on theory and principle. Here's what he said, quote, the half-life of a legal concept, even in these challenging times, is measured in centuries, not academic years. As legal historians can testify, many of the, most, many of the important problems and controversies of our day are just recreations under different labels of problems encountered by successive generations from centuries past. <clears throat> a legal training that is predominantly theoretical is best able to equip students with the principles and skills they can apply throughout shifting circumstances of the next half century." Close quote. Thus, the goal of much of the study of law is not primarily to create specific expertise, but to teach principles that will allow students to handle the multitude of different challenges that will emerge in the practice of law or simply in the course of life. And of course, one of those challenges is distinguishing principle from application and the essential from adiaphora. This is not to say that all application is adiaphora. Think about the word of wisdom. The crucial principle is that our body is a temple, and understanding that principle can answer so many questions about how we ought to treat our body. But we still do have some applications, alcohol, tea, coffee, that are not matters of indifference or adiaphora. It's not surprising that when one listens to the leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it is evident that their talks focus primarily on principles rather than on application. Their focus is on the essential. This focus on teaching essential principles rather than application has some other salient benefits. It is a powerful symbol of trust. It allows us not to be commanded in all things, but to instead be anxiously engaged in good causes by our own free will and choice. Teaching principles also promotes the exercise of moral agency. We are free to act for ourselves in applying the essential principle to particular situations. If we are trying to discern the boundary between the essential and adiaphora, focusing on principles seems the wisest course. Now, we often teach this in the negative by pointing to the Sabbath practices of the scribes and the Pharisees at the time of Christ. Recall how the scribes and Pharisees famously constructed fences around the Mosaic Law to ensure that the command not to work on the Sabbath was followed, for example, various detailed categories of work were defined, including how many steps one could take, how many letters could be written, and so forth. The Savior famously condemned this approach, healing the sick and plucking and eating heads of grain on the Sabbath and teaching that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Still, I think sometimes we may be too fast on our criticism of the scribes and Pharisees for their fence building. It can be wisdom 
to build personal fences around commandments we wish to keep. Walking to the edge of danger is rarely wise. The Savior himself proposed fences with respect to the commandment against murder, enjoining that whosoever is angry without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And also he did so with respect to adultery, enjoining looking on a woman to lust after her. In our own efforts to live what is essential, we may construct protective fences. In doing so, however, we need to be mindful that our fence is not the equivalent of the underlying principle or law. And thus, we should not insist that others build their barricade in precisely the same place. That was the real error of the scribes and the Pharisees. It can be so tempting to assume that the boundary between essential and adiaphora mirrors our preferences. That which we regard as essential is essential for everyone else. And that which we regard as a matter of indifference must be a matter of indifference for all. Here, the admonitions to judge not in Matthew and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God in Micah seem particularly critical. If our neighbor's application of a command is different than our application, it is not a cause for judgment. This is not to say that any behavioral choice is, accept is an acceptable application of the underlying principle. The key concept is one of accountability. We are surely accountable for our own demarcation between the essential and the adiaphora, and that should be enough to occupy our full attention. Understanding that application choices are statements of personal accountability teaches a related point. Because discerning the boundary between essential and adiaphora can be challenging and controversial, we often want to enlist others to our cause. If only the prophet or another leader would just give us a talk affirming our preferred application of a doctrinal principle. Stated another way, we want our choices to be affirmed as being on the do list rather than the don't list. This sort of capture the leader or sometimes just capture the preferred talk is a temptation for all of us, and I've certainly participated. But ultimately, we are still accountable to the Lord for the boundary we draw and the application of the principle we pursue insisting that our demarcation of the adiaphora is public, be publicly affirmed is, in a sense, a request that the application of others be publicly condemned. How much better for all of us to charitably understand and humbly consider when others apply a principle differently and to instead focus on our own accountability? Another approach we sometimes employ to avoid hard questions about the boundary between essential and adiaphora is to reduce the size of the essential so that almost any doctrine and policy is a matter of indifference. Recall my earlier effort to set forth just a few core doctrines that could be categorized as essential. The existence of God, the Savior's atoning sacrifice, the two great commandments to love God with all of thy heart, might, mind, and strength, and to love thy neighbor as thyself, and the Ten Commandments. Visually, um, one can imagine, and I think you have to imagine because I don't have a PowerPoint slide. I decided to forego PowerPoint because they tend to look like home movies when I do them. But visually, imagine a vast outer circle representing the adiaphora. And then at the center of that larger circle, four inner concentric circles identifying these essentials. As I suggested earlier, additional essential doctrines could be added to expand the interior concentric circles. The covenants we make with our Heavenly Father are an example. What happens, though, when an essential principle or doctrine may not align with one of our political or policy preferences? As I suggested before, one temptation is to ignore this possibility and uncritically assume that our preferences align perfectly with the essential. 
Another risk is that we will simply reduce the area of what is essential until our preference sits comfortably outside the inner circle and within the broader boundary of adiaphora as a matter of indifference. An example of this might be the idea that the only essential truth is God's love and that everything else is adiaphora. This has some appeal because God's love for us and the two great commandments that we love Him and love our neighbor is indeed an essential baseline principle from which so many important and faithful applications can be derived. The risk, however, is that if love is the one essential, the er principle, the other commandments can be relegated as adiaphora. Yet the Savior was clear that on the two great commandments, quote, hang all the law and the prophets, close quote. He also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Thus the Savior invested the principle of love with essential subsidiary principles and applications. This makes sense because the commandments themselves are a manifestation of God's love in the form of information about how to live joyfully. What is critical, I think, is not to relegate the commandments to the adiaphora, to the indifferent. If the commandments are matters of indifference, the Savior's atoning sacrifice is irrelevant. Mercy would not need to satisfy the demands of justice. It would be no small irony if Christ's teachings about love were understood to vitiate His greatest act of love, His sacrifice to atone for our sins, on the assumption that He unnecessarily paid a price that justice did not require. So discerning the precise boundaries of the essential the adiaphora is a lifetime project. Indeed, I'm quite confident we won't discern its full boundaries during our lifetime. For as Paul said, quote, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even also, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity." Close quote. If we can't discern the boundary precisely, I hope that tonight I've been able to be clear that there are indeed essential and eternal truths discernible to all who seek them. Indeed, the most precious truths are known most fully by the Spirit. But even if the essential is most perceptively discerned by the Spirit, I hope also that I've hit upon a few useful principles to guide our effort um, in our effort to study it out in our minds, this boundary between the essential and the adiaphora. Because drawing boundaries is such an important function of our exercise of agency, and because the effort can be so challenging, and because even when we properly discern what is essential, we fail to consistently live in accordance with the truths we know, Paul's admonition to charity is critical. I tried to capture this idea in the title of my remarks tonight, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Humble Jurist. Till next time, as always, be humble and just.